Influentialiers. It's Alex and Lenka Kenan here coming at you from the Netherlands with another episode of the Influential Executive Podcast. And today it's all about you. You, you and you with how are you? <laughs> okay, I sorry guys, I really had to make the joke. We had today an, a podcast episode with, I can say, the coolest professor I've ever had the chance to meet. Howard teaches at one of the most prestigious business schools at IMD Business School in Switzerland and he shared with us so much knowledge about business, innovation and what can we do to stay ahead. You know, we, we are always about zooming out, taking a moment to step back and look at the bigger picture of what's going on at work, in the office, but also in the world. In the, in the field of strategy. Which trends do we see? And Howard took us on a journey and he showed us all the business trends, um, Asia, Europe, United States, different industries. It was really exciting. We learned about the three factors that any business needs to innovate more and faster. We learned about how you, as an employee, as a manager, can grow along with these businesses so that you still are of value in 10, 20 years from now, even though computers may take over part of our work. Lots of cool stuff coming up. And of course, this podcast has been presented to you by Earn More, Work Less. We give superpowers to your team. We get rid of stress in the office so that we can use our minds to create beautiful experiences for our clients and for each other. Right now, enjoy this episode with Howard Yu. Howard, welcome to the Influential Executive Podcast. My pleasure. We're very excited to have a business professor in our episode right now because much of what we talk about is uh, with, with coaches, it's about the practical side of things. And I'm sure you also know a lot of theory that we can apply to simply getting more done in business with less effort. Yeah, it's my great pleasure to share some of my thinking around this area. So it's uh, my honor to be on your show. You're currently teaching at IMD uh, University right in Switzerland. That's correct. Um, IMD is an independent business school and is based in Switzerland, in Lausanne. Um, it's very different from the area where I was growing up. I grew up in Hong Kong and studied in Boston and live in New York before moving to the little town called Lausanne in Switzerland. Ah. It was a shock, but uh, it's been nice. I've been around for eight years now. Wow. And when did you decide to become a professor? Were you the kind of child who was playing uh, with, with notebooks and rating other kids? Or when did it appear to you, hey, I want to be a teacher? Oh, not at all. I remember I uh, was working as a banker in Hong Kong uh, for Citibank. And I was going through a stage where I don't know what I want to do. All I know is I looked into my supervisor's position. And he's also a management trainee at the time. So he becomes a big star in the bank, in Hong Kong City Bank. And I just looking at his job and I don't want his job. And that becomes quite a strong signal <laughs> that I need to find uh, a sort of new career path or a new calling. And, and, and that's when I begin to thinking about, hmm, 
Do I want to do a doctoral program so that I can become a business school professor? Or I want to pursue an MBA program to become an executive in another industry. Mm -hmm. So there was a bit of time of soul searching, I remember. Uh, eventually, I signed up teaching. And how did, that, uh, how did that work for you? Like, Can you bring us on the journey um, yeah, into your self-discovery? Because I, I assume it was a lot about finding yourself, finding your purpose. Yeah. I, I, at the time, I was just feeling not very happy and I know something's gone wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and I just keep on talking to people, people who have different experience far away from mine, people who have done stuff that I would never dream of doing at all. And I attend a lot of uh, MBA recruitment talk, I remember. And that gives you a feel of how that future life may be like and whether you like it or not. And I still remember I did not know what I wanted to do, but I became quite aware of what I do not want to sign up. So I attended an MBA curriculum or recruitment event by European major school at the time. And the recruiter basically tell us the first day you're going to arrive on our campus, we'll make sure you're going to network with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. We're going to make sure you clarify your career track. We're going to expedite your search and you land in a great job. And that just doesn't resonate with me too much because I actually want to spend some time to figure out what exactly I want to do. Yeah. I want to explore much more possibility out there. And I want to understand how the world works. It's just one of those things that you want to do. And um, that gives me a strong feeling that the whole MBA curriculum in terms of value proposition is great for many people, many individuals but probably fit my life circumstance. So I don't, still don't know exactly what I wanted to achieve ultimately, but at least one get a feel of what you will not enjoy and avoid those track and avoid going down those paths. Wow, I, I, I like that. So what do you enjoy about teaching? I always wondered. <laughs> yeah. I mean, IMD is almost like a, a funny animal among business school as well, because it was established by Harvard Business School after Second World War at a time when Europe doesn't have any business school. So Nestle, who is an early sponsor from IMD, went over to Harvard and talked to uh, Kenneth Andrew, who is mentor of Michael Porter. So people who are in a business school or know Michael Porter, talk about Michael Porter Five Forces. So his mentor was advising Nestle. And Nestle at the time wanted to build up a corporate training center. Now, Harvard being Harvard, they told uh, Kenneth Andrew, no, you want to set up a business school so that there would be other executive from other sector can have a conversation with Nestle manager so that you get to learn from others. Mm -hmm. And so this is how IMD built up. So from day one, is very focused on executive education. What I like about my job now is I don't teach MBA and I don't teach uh, uh, undergraduate student because we had a very, very small curriculum for MBA. Majority of our activities do on uh, executive education. So I get to work with practicing manager, executive, on how can they turn, turn, change the way they lead think about their businesses differently in the age of AI, connectivity, and dis digital disruption, and really propel their career to the next level. So it's much more hands-on in many ways. Mm -hmm. I get to learn as much as I teach them. 
because they all came with a wealth of lifetime experience. So it's a very different crowd if I compare to conventional business school. And I've been doing uh, my job for the last seven years and there's still not a day feeling bored or tired yet. Hopefully it stay for another decade. That, that must be amazing. I, if I think back of my time in university, <clears throat> I, I did two masters in a Rotterdam business school in business as well. And then I started my actual working career. And suddenly, everything I learned in this five and a half years of theory right. started to make sense. Right. But it was too late to close the loop and go back to the theory yeah. as I finished my studies. So now you combining the practice with theory, I can imagine that it gives some pretty powerful outcomes. Yeah, and as you talk to executives and managers, they always find it's so important to take time off to reflect and make sense of their own experience so that they can really improve their performance to the next level. I think the biggest problem among senior executive or even any middle manager these days is we're too busy. We just keep on, you know, plan, do, plan, do, and we never get any opportunity to reflect our own action, to observe what we've done so that you can do stuff differently and try different tact and learn from others. So I think you're spot on, right? Um, you know, as an undergrad, we get the opportunity to learn all this theory, but we lack the opportunity to practice. Once we're in the battlefield and there is no time to step back to judge whatever choices that we've been making day in and day out, are they optimal? Um, the tasks that I'm doing day in and day out, things that I keep on the top priority, does it serve my company? Does it serve my team? Does it serve my personal ambition? Um, does it contribute to my own well-being? We rarely have that chance to take a step back. And, and I think that uh, learning how to learn and continue to go back, may it be a business school or other professional school or even a different degree, I think that is absolutely critical to human flourishing. Yeah, I can imagine one thing that, uh, that we found in the work we do is that learning is always a priority over producing. <clears throat> not, not always, but when there's no emergencies and you use every opportunity you have to also take some distance and learn from what is happening, that way you create much faster growth your own understanding of things and so the choices that you make absolutely and what is true at the individual level is is also true at the team level as well as organization level which is why i often seen uh leading performing companies they would have executive and manager are intensely curious themselves they're not necessarily just eager and excited about their own sector they're also extremely curious about what's going on around the world. And it's that breadth of understanding and diversity of perspective at the company level that oftentimes distinguish leading companies versus those who get stuck in the middle. Awesome. Do you have an, an example, and I'm sure that this happens a lot, where one company is really struggling with something and the other one says, Ah, but then you just need to do this and this and this. <laughs> yeah, I think you touches on a fundamental element that I cover in my book as well. 
in the book Leap, in the second part of the book, I kind of looking at how can company really uh, broaden up or open up that uh, adventure for innovation. Because if you try to do more or less the same in trying to solve more or less the same problem, there's rarely any breakthrough. And oftentimes what we see is from very engineering, scientific-driven organization, all the way to sort of FMCG or consumer packaged goods organization, if they were to accelerate certain innovation agenda, they have to embrace open innovation in the sense that you explore other, how other sector works and behave. And also to the extreme, you put that challenge in the hands of individual outside your own organization so that they can co-create, they can discover new means. And the best company, they will come up with tool. They will come up with a really concrete method to allow these external inventor to create something and buy back from this external creator. So there are examples I'm happy to go deeper from NASA to DAPA, this government agency, all the way to DSM, a Dutch nutritional company, um, all the way to consumer packaged goods in China. How do they use this idea of open innovation, not just co-create, but empower the external community to solve their own problem, which much faster and more efficient result. Can you give a concrete example of a certain policy that has been put in place in such a project? Sure thing. So a great example and the most probably one of the craziest example is a, um, is a smartphone manufacturer from China. His name is called Xiaomi. So um, many of us in Europe may not have heard of them, but in India, they have already surpassed Samsung as the largest cell phone manufacturer and seller in India. Now in China, it's number three. Now this is curious because it, it is really a startup. It's less than seven year old. If you think about smartphone industry, it's really hard to compete. You have Apple and Samsung. On the low end, you have Huawei, ZTE, Lenovo, this big manufacturer. Xiaomi as a startup should have no chance. But they succeed, and they went listed in Hong Kong Stock Exchange last year. Its market valuation today is around $74 billion, which is exactly the same valuation as Uber. So we're talking about someone quite big. As I was interviewing this company, I noticed they do everything differently from Apple and Samsung and Huawei. The way they conduct R&D research development, they don't rely on in-house talent. So Apple is simple, right? We're going to build the best product in the world. We're going to invent ourselves and change the world. Uh, Huawei, the Chinese copycat, if you will, they're sort of looking at what do people do, and we're going to quickly copy them and be fast follower. And, you know, Samsung have pursued that strategy as a fast follower strategy for a long time. What Xiaomi have done is they take Android as an operating system, we know, but they put on what they call an Android skin. So think about you can customize your Android phone by using a skin that is very easy for you to program. So you don't necessarily be a software programmers, but you can invent new features. So all of a sudden, millions of users of Xiaomi mobile phone, they become the software engineers for Xiaomi, working for free every day, 
So we're talking about millions of individual inventor who keep on innovating. So every Friday, 5 p.m. Beijing time, Xiaomi would launch a new operating system. People talk about that. And that becomes the first wave of rapid innovation for Xiaomi to become so good in what they do. So it's this idea that do not think about the best people in your field would always work for you, but you've got to enable the external community, give them tool, give them opportunity to contribute and make it fun. Is this idea of crowdsourcing becomes more and more important mm -hmm. because these days, you know, information circulate easily. Uh, it's very easy to copy your product idea and the speed of implementation becomes the differentiating factor. And we've got to embrace the external talent outside your, your, your company. Wow, that's a beautiful strategy. Yeah, and, and again, consumer electronic is one, but we continue to see, for example, DSM from Holland. They really use uh, open innovation as an idea to also accelerate their product development. Um, so it's both upstream and downstream, conservative sector all the way to uh, the new, new uh, internet economy we begin to see this type of uh, embrace of open innovation in order to mass produce decision become much and much more important. Howard, you talked quickly about your book, Leap. Um, so I have a couple of questions related to your book. Like, I wonder what led you to writing this book and uh, when did you write this book? Yeah, it was an interesting story, right? Because the book was launched uh, late last year and the European paperback just came out early this year. And um, the Portuguese version is in fact launching in April. So it's quite exciting to see this international version beginning to generate momentum. And so I was looking at, when did I start re writing this book? Because you kind of forget once you write the book and, and thank goodness there's internet archive and you know my computer archive, I get to look the very first chapter that I began to write, it was back in 2014, and I was like, it was such a long time ago. Um, <laughs> so the idea that I write this book is out of my daily conversation with executives. And um, the title is, of course, Leap and How to Thrive in a World When Everything Can Be Copied. And I remember a lot of the time in a, a conversation with manager, one of the biggest complaints that they have is that they find it very hard to differentiate their product in the marketplace. Um, their product continue to uh, subject to all kinds of pricing pressure. There are low-cost competition coming in. And today, whenever they launch certain product features, they get copy overnight. And then they keep on introducing new product features. And then they get copy again. And while these, they keep on innovating faster and faster, they see the cost structure continue to increase because R&D is more, marketing dollars more. And, and so it's sort of a trap because at one point in time, while you keep on innovating, your costs increase, some dirt cheap version from Asia will suddenly appear and stop the whole game. So that was a big complaint from all executives across different sectors of the economy. I'm talking about electronics to consumer packaged goods to hotel, travel industry, healthcare. They all face the same issue. So that becomes the initial thrust for me, trying to understand, well, in a world when idea can easily get copied, 
how can pioneering organization, some of them are from the West, some of them are from Japan, either way, how can they continue to prosper over the long run? And when I'm thinking about copying, getting copied, these days, even your internal knowledge, things that you know in your head, can get easily translated into an algorithm <laughs> in smart machine, and overnight, it can get copied as another smart algorithm and scale. So individually, we're also getting affected. How can I make sure my career, my expertise would continue to be valued in the age of AI? So, so that becomes the initial thrust for me to really investigate and develop this book idea. What were the findings that you share in the book? Yeah, so one key element that I learned is pioneering company stay on top of competition is not because they do their operations slightly better than others. But from time to time, historically, they need what I say, leap to the next knowledge frontier. I'll give you a very concrete example. In a lot of industry, what we know is when the industry itself in terms of the underlying knowledge stagnate, sooner or later, the latecomer, the copycat, would reach the similar performance. Which is why historically, when General Motor, Chrysler, Ford, they make cars, great cars, after the Second World War, they get caught up by Toyota, Honda, and then it's Kia, Hyundai from, Japan, uh, from South Korea, and today the Chinese manufacturer. You see the same thing in personal computer, right? Historically, it's Compaq, Hewitt Packard, NEC. And then today is Lenovo, is Acer, is the Asian company. Mobile phones, the same thing, except for Apple. Pretty much goes to Samsung and Huawei. So, but then there are exceptions. Industry, that pioneering company continue to stay on top, is the underlying knowledge change. You think about pharmaceutical industry, right? Pfizer, Novartis, Roche. These pharmaceutical companies, continue to be the leading player of the industry. It's not like there are Chinese drug makers displays these guys like Detroit, gone, uh, gone rustic. Uh, in Basel, where the headquarters of Roche and Novartis situated, is a thriving city. Pfizer is still very successful as a global pharmaceutical industry. What I learned from my research is for pharmaceutical company, the reason they stay on top of competition it's not just patent, it's not just FDA approval, but they really shift their underlying knowledge. Historically, two centuries ago, it's all about organic chemistry. Then it's the study of microbiology, penicillin, antibiotics, it's all about bacteria. Today it's DNA, genomics. So it's this shift of technologies and discipline that allow pioneering company to stay on top. Versus you think about a car manufacturing, these days, unless we're talking about EV and self-driving car, we can talk about that later. Historically, it's always about mechanical engineering because it stays stagnate, latecomer, catch up. So that's the fundamental reason why certain pioneering company can prosper over the long run when others couldn't. And once you understand that, the reason why everyone rushed into artificial intelligence, everyone rushed into advanced robotics, begins to make sense because they do represent the next frontier of knowledge. 
one thing that um, that I'm always looking at is examples of companies that have made operational excellence into a driver for innovation. And the reason why, why I'm asking specifically about this is that the way that we view organizations more than anything else is like a collection of human beings. Mm. And together they form an energy field that is the organization. But still, there's human beings inside and they communicate every day. They ask each other questions. They make decisions. And once you put the right management structures in place, right. have the right people speak with the right other people with the right information at hand at the right time, asking the right questions, magic can happen. Mm-hmm. Do you have any organization that uses this as a driving force for innovation? Yeah, so, so this is really interesting, right? In order to drive innovation, I think there are the prerequisite as well as very important behavior by senior management team. So there are almost like precondition, if you will, like uh, diversity of perspective, right? If your organization or are in-house homegrown talent from one region having the same mentality, it's pretty hard to innovate over the long run. And the typical example, if you're thinking about a big car company in Germany, and if they don't have a diverse sort of distributed research center, if every car guys are from the same region within Germany, it's pretty hard for them to come to grip to understand, well, you know, people may not want to drive. In fact, people just want to be transported from point A to point B. Driving is not fun. Driving may be fun for the old generation, but for the next generation, the millennial and beyond, they might not think uh, driving is fun. Living in the city mega city and getting everything walkable distance may be a more preferred lifestyle. So, so there is certain like diversity in perspective is a prerequisite. The core health of the organization in terms of the existing product is also important because it's so hard to innovate or spend energy to innovate when your core business is in decline. So you need to innovate when time is still on your side, for sure. And then the third is tying to what you said before. is something to do with the organizational structure that we need to allow employees having the right perspective, having the right mindset, and having the right ambition is able to experiment fast and learn quick from the marketplace and scale up any early success. Big company running into trouble because they thought whenever a project idea getting approved, we're gonna just implement as of plan and never look back. But in fact, what we observe from startup companies to any fast agile organization, failure is inevitable. And you don't know what you don't know until you try it out in the marketplace. And so is this idea, how do you create that freedom for uh, ambitious, competent manager to try things out and not getting punished because in the face of uncertainty, rather encouraging them to learn and scale up that lesson. Um, that becomes important. And, and within a large, complex organization, it's not always easy. That makes sense. Howard, do you work only with big corporates or do you also work with smaller companies? Yeah, for small companies, what we tend to do at the business school, we run consortium because um, 
is the value of the network. Um, what we want to do, what you want to do is to bring entrepreneur together to mingle with big company executive, because this is the two worlds that are so different. <laughs> About talking to one another is actually magic can happen. Um, you know, Particularly these days, people talk a lot about digitization in the realm of healthcare, aviation, uh, or legal work or banking. All these sectors, you can't just put a startup and change the world itself. It's probably likely to be a startup and working with big companies. They're highly regulated. Everyone doing the best in their own activities. And it's this strategic alliance between the two. So we do a lot of consortium so that startup can get exposed to big company to understand, you know, if we were to be a part of a corporate endeavor, well, there are certain language we need to know. <laughs> and, and for big company, they also need to understand how entrepreneurship actually work. Um, they may not be great in making PowerPoint and, you know, florid vocabulary, but they really are close to the marketplace. They know how things work. They are close to the customer. So it's not, not holding them accountable for their own action. Of course you do. But the kind of key performance indicator uh, would be different. How you measure their success would be different. And, and it's this type of dialogue and seeing is believing, right? We can always do a case study, but having this dialogue between the big and the small actually creates a lot of value we see. Yeah, I really appreciate the fact that you bring two completely different worlds together and it becomes way much more practical than just the theory. Now, you were listed as one of the top world's um, uh, professors or uh, a business professor under 40, right? What do you believe that, that why, do, why did people nominate you? Why, why don't people what? Why did people nominate you or who did nominate you and why do you think uh, that they did so? Oh man, I, 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 so that was an anonymous uh, uh, nomination. So I still don't know who nominated me, but I remember um, I did some uh, coaching for the EMBA curriculum. It may be that, I still suspect. And um, at IMD, we also run expedition. Um, so that is one of my favorite. And I suspect some of those nominee uh, nomination came from that program. So, so we basically spent uh, a week over in China to visit two cities. And so um, that must be my fan base, where we basically explore Shanghai as well as Suzhou. We take the high-speed rail between the two cities. And what we try to learn from that program is, you know, we all know about how Silicon Valley innovate. But somehow China is also moving very fast. So we want to understand what exactly is that Chinese entrepreneurship that look different or maybe similar to the Western type of Silicon Valley playbook because they will never talk about the same way, but maybe there are behavioral elements that are universal. The pursuit of a big dream perhaps, or the pursuit of growth and how do you scale and be close to the marketplace. So we basically spend a week over in China. Many of them don't speak a word of Chinese, but we put them in touch with translator in between to interact with local manager. Many of them young, they're still wearing, you know, same thing, t-shirt, sneakers, working startup in Alibaba Innovation Center. So they have fun along the way. What I did is simply try to be the cultural translator 
when there are misunderstanding or key lesson learned that they don't, they don't really know or asking questions the way you get the result because you're not going to get a lot of information if you be too forefront asking about the political question. If you want to ask that question, you need to frame it properly. So, so I think it's that cultural translation. Maybe people appreciate that and they may be behind the back and nominate me. But um, despite so, is 40 under 40. I have only one more year to go. Um, I'm 39 now. So going off the cliff soon. <laughs> Um, speak, speaking of diversity as a driver for innovation, your background is so diverse that I can imagine that you have created a truly unique perspective in the field of business and strategy. So what I would love to do is take all of this and look ahead into the future. So Howard, 10 years from now, what will be the largest company in the world? Wow, that's a, that's a really, really crazy and scary question to ask. <laughs> it's almost like, would Amazon still survive as it, right? Um, or would Facebook still survive? Um, so let me back it out a little bit. So, so the biggest company, let's talk about the company attribute. If, if the, if, whether it's Amazon or Facebook, if they were to succeed and continue to become the biggest one, or like Apple to be the biggest one, what that would look like? I think there are a couple of things. Um, one is the idea of controlling a platform, because these are all platform company from Google to Facebook to Apple. They have the App Store and Amazon. They essentially selling third party merchants as well. These are all platform company. But I think in 10 years from now, one thing is the sort of machine learning or algorithm or the filter of your newsfeed today is so opaque will be completely transparent 10 years from now because of societal expectation, because of consumer backlash, because of policymaker. So the idea today, the algorithm inside Amazon or the algorithm inside Google or Facebook are proprietary. They can protect secret source. No one can scrutinize. I think in the future, the biggest company, they will pretty be open in terms of allowing at least data scientists or computer scientists to scrutinize on a regular basis. So that would be one attribute. The second is it would be even more purpose-driven. So Google used to say, don't do evil. Uh, Facebook is connecting the world. Along the way, they lost certain founding principle, I think. And now this is why the likability among this company dropped. Um, if you're looking at history, every time when a company grow to a certain size in terms of percentage of GDP, if they are not careful about their likability, they would run into the risk of be, being broken up. So this is when Standard Oil is being broken up, AT&T getting broken up. And Facebook and Amazon and Google are really running into that risk now because their reputation is at risk, essentially. When you're gathering our information and you sell it to advertiser, and yet you're not respecting our freedom, and you're changing the way we see the world without us knowing that, is at a serious risk of being broken up. So if 10 years from now, the biggest company, what, how they would look like, I think they would be held much more strong accountability in terms of this societal effect. Uh, it would be much more in the sense of distributed ownership 
So right now, Mark Zuckerberg is the biggest owner of these big giant companies. So it's Jeff Bezos, the majority shareholder. It wouldn't be the case. Otherwise, it's just not going to happen because the society demand much more of a purpose-driven organization. So that would be two of my thoughts. And the third one, wow, it may not be an American company, perhaps. That would be a provocative thought. Um, over you know, the five, six decades, the largest, most valuable company has historically been always coming out from North America. Um, would that continue p- to be the case when other regions are growing much faster um, if their economy on other parts of the world become larger, uh, it may not be an American firm anymore. So this would be my hatch around your question. Uh, in short, I don't think Amazon as of today looking like or Apple the way they look will allow them to become the largest firm in a decade. I love it. This is very insightful. And can I build on it a little bit? Of course, you can so, build on it. <laughs> so one thing I, I keep hearing, I, I always listen to words very carefully. And one word I constantly hear is fast. Growing faster, building faster, speed of implementation. One word that didn't come up so much yet is valuable. So now if we completely zoom out and look at all these human beings, these social mammals on the planet, we have everything we need to survive. We, we, have, we have food, we have shelter, not everywhere in the world, but most of the technologies right now that are coming into development, they, they just add on to faster, quicker information flows. One time in the past, like a couple of months ago, I heard the prediction that the largest company in 10 years from now, or 20 years, I don't remember, would be in the field of education. Because, and, and it made a click inside of myself, realizing that that is ultimately where the most value is to be gotten, is in upgrading human beings to a more rich life experience. And that is stuff that happens up in here. It requires education, experimentation, reflection, all of that. What are your thoughts on that? That's interesting, right? Um, You know, if I put put on top of layer that historically you don't see a lot of companies or even large company in a space of education is is primarily for, for reason that it can never scale in the past or even the current form. Each country would have many universities. Almost every town would have a university because the operation never scale. Every time you teach someone, you need to put a professor in front of the classroom. Big company become so big because the impact to the society can be very big. Leveraging automation or more recently would be artificial intelligence. This is how you scale a business so that your valuation becomes much bigger. So, so I think with the current technologies, it becomes closer and closer. People talk about flip classroom, talking about delivering content off-site and using AR and VR as immersive experience so that a one professor whose impact can be leveraged and disseminated across the world. I mean, before MOOC, there's no way an MIT professor can teach engineering to someone who sit and live in India. 
now the technology is not quite there yet. The experience is not quite complete versus an exchange student go to Massachusetts and sit in class. But hey, with the technologies from AI to virtual reality, it really is just a matter of time that distant learning, the effect and efficacy may even be better than our traditional classroom. Now, if that happened, that means winner take all, right? Now for colleges and university is bad news because they would have so much pressure that no one is applying for the degree, which you already see in the United States for MBA applicant, there's a year on year decline at Cornell, for example. Cornell is a good school too, but they see year to year decline because of these underlying changes in technologies that galvanize people to start program. And if when VR and AR together with AI become mature and swarm into the education sector, it would cause a seize of change. And we most likely would see, you know, big organization emerge, much like uh, in other sectors before, the music industry, that you begin to see big record label emerge. And same thing could happen in education sector. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So then uh, when the world becomes like one community, you have, let's say, one thought leader or a ranking of thought leaders in a specific subject, and then combine that with an army of coaches, mm -hmm. people help each other apply this knowledge in their own reality, have new experiences, reflect on it and grow. That is something that could be perfectly scalable. That, that becomes scalable and also reducing the variance or variation of the quality. Um, arguably from healthcare to education, these two are the sector which experience the most variation in terms of quality when you compare to aviation, like airline or, 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 or consumer electronics or automotive uh, versus education and healthcare historically have the widest range of variation across service provider. Um, but, but those are, you know, what we just described are the enabling technologies to, to bring the low end also to the higher level. This is very exciting. So we may uh, go to the drawing board and draw this out. We have 10 years to make it happen. So there's plenty <laughs> of time. Um, Here's a question I have for people listening. You know, these are all ambitious people looking to learn, to grow. Um, what can they do yeah. to prepare themselves for a great career in the next 10, 20 years in this ever-changing world? Yeah, I, I'm glad that you bring it up. Um, because lately, of course, people and commentator and opinion leader, they all focus on a lot around AI because AI does represent a force to automate a lot of knowledge work. From radiologists, historically, a human expert, you read a scan, you determine where the tumors are, and advise doctors. And now it's no longer just outsourced to India for offshore reading. It's coming back to the United States or Western country, but read by machine. So, so it's, it's, it's this idea that knowledge workers are also at risk because of this advanced knowledge automation. Um, so doctors at risk and, and many, many of the narrowly defined jobs are at risk. Even there are articles written by robots we read on the news these days. The social press have automated 3,000 articles per quarter. The news article that we read are already written by robots. So even as writer, we are also at risk. So what do we do? Well, I think for any manager, 
no matter what sector you're in, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're accountant, whether you're sales, you've got to see your job as a basket of different tasks. Some tasks are very routine, even when it's uh, knowledge-based. Um, you know, if it is routine in terms of making a PowerPoint slide, collecting information and populating into Excel spreadsheet, you know it's not going to value at over the long run. But there are aspects of your job would probably be much more around the realms of required creativity, social networking, judgment, human empathy, sense-making. In short, it's sprawled across different domains of knowledge. This is where machine doesn't do very well. It doesn't make sense of human emotion very well. It doesn't really understand across domain of knowledge what it means. What it's really good at is to specialize and speed it up. What is not very good is to be the generalist across different domain of knowledge. So you're looking at this basket of work and tasks that you have in your career. You want to emphasize those which humans still play an advantage. And if you can avoid the tasks that are routinely based through change of career or asking for different roles within the organization, do it. And, and once you see that as an impetus, then you can navigate your career in much more effective manner. Um, the last thing is, I always said, you know, don't get your daily agenda to be captured by your email inbox. The manager gets so busy that they rarely set their own agenda, right? The thing that they do is because of the email inbox. This is a bad idea because the last thing you want is to become a human router of information in the age of AI. That just makes no sense. And so, so it's how do you make sure you control your own agenda so that your work would demand creativity and you deliver the work with creativity. This is what value add over the long run. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that you bring up the inbox because that was already a problem that I needed to sort out for myself 11 years ago. And still, still today, everywhere, so, people are tripping yeah. over this pitfall. So many people yeah. start their day just by reading emails. Do you think Howard is ready for the rapid fire question round? Oh, I'm sure. And I think you can read the questions because... Are, uh, are you up for a small <laughs> challenge? All right, let's try. So this is the rapid fire question round. And we integrated this round to mix up the interview a little bit and to test your... Test how, how fast you react and, and how, your, how your subconscious mind responds to certain words and prompts. I'm probably uh, fail in that department, but let's go. <laughs> That's all right. You're a university professor, so we, we give you <laughs> some extra space to think. Um, we will uh, state words, and the challenge is to answer with one word. Mm -hmm. so, association. Okay. First word, leader. Uh, followers. Inspiration. Aspiration. Thinking. Doing. Feeling. Perception. Innovation. Renovation. Science. Art. Team. What? Team. Oh, team, leaders. Freedom. Policy. Spirituality. Emotion. Fun. 
play. Money. Status. Vacation. Dislocation. <laughs> I love that. Intuition. Judgment. Right. Uh, now we just ask you a normal question. Still, okay. you answer with one word. All right. What is the purpose of life? To have a sense of well-being. What is currently on top of your bucket list? What does bucket list mean? <laughs> top priority? Oh no, you must work too much if you don't know what bucket list is. But bucket list is the list of experiences you want to collect uh, in the future. So things okay. you really want to have or experience. Like bungee jumping. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, um, meditation. <laughs> A, a, a sense of peace, <laughs> freedom. Um, give you one more. Um, international travel. Are you um, uh, a big meditator? I'm not. This is why why I think it's on my bucket list because I I do want to do more. Ah, cool, cool. My next, next question would be, what happens after we die? After we die? Well, I, well wow, it's hard to... I won't <laughs> say nothing, but it must be something. Um, how do you say that? To trans, transcend back to the network. I, I don't know. I like it as well. Something, something like that, when, when you don't have your body. Well, it sounds very smart, so it, it must be... Back like to something. <laughs> some network, some matrix out there. Very cool. I love this answer. Final question. Okay. What is your favorite personal development book? My favorite? Oh, um, yes. So, what gets you here won't get you there. Ah. Marshall Goldsmith. Yes. Yes, that's a great one. Oh, that's really good. Can we say that out of all of the rapid fire question rounds we've done, which has been about seven or eight now, that Howard has been the quickest to respond? Yeah. Honestly, I was really surprised. Not that I underestimated you. Okay. <laughs> it's just so rare that people answer so fast. It's like, did, did, did it really come from subconscious mind? Or did you have to think? I think a little bit, but whatever came to my mind, I just tell you. So that's no filter. No, there, there was no filter. This no was... Filter. <laughs> This was directly to the subconscious mind, and that's uh, right. really cool. Thank you very much. Well done, also. Um, Thank you. My goodness. Howard, before we close off, is there one final lesson or message you would like to pass on to anybody listening right now? Yeah, um, I guess never stop learning, be, be curious, and be bold. Never stop learning, be curious, and be bold. Be bold. Ah, interesting. <laughs> Why yeah. is it interesting? Well, because immediately comes to mind, like, if I have to be bold, then I would like to ask you, Howard, <laughs> would you like to spend some more time in another moment thinking about how we can create Boldness. this largest organization for 10, yeah, 20 okay. years from now, taking all these pieces of the puzzle that we have, yeah. Putting it together because, you know, it, it took Twitter only two years to conquer the world. So we have plenty of time. 
it's just a matter of putting that puzzle together. Exactly. I, I think there's a real need on that too. And, and, and the environment is ripe for disruption, as they say in the valley. Awesome. Let's do it. Howard, yeah. for all the people out there who say, I want to learn more about you and I want to buy your book, where they can find you? Yeah, they can find me on my personal website is www.howardu.org. So that's H-O-W-A-R-D-Y-U.org. And they can connect me on LinkedIn. And my Amazon is from Barnes & Nobles to Amazon. They are the French version, they're the Portuguese version, the Chinese version is coming out. <laughs> Uh, so let's stay connected and continue with the conversation. It's awesome to be on this show. Brilliant. Howard, thank you so much for being here, for sharing all your knowledge. I loved this conversation. I enjoyed the conversation very much. So thank you so much for having me around here. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Are you ready, guys, to write after this interview just pause for a second and think what can you do to set up yourself for success in the future it's all about learning howard said so that's what i take along as well to stay in touch with howard you can go to his website howardu.org he's also on social media howard you and his book leap you heard us talk about it it's on amazon even in several different languages this episode was brought to you by Earn More Work Less. On earnmoreworkless.com, you find all kinds of resources to give superpowers to yourself and to your team. You heard Howard, it's all about learning. That's what you do on earnmoreworkless.com. Check out our blog, get our free ebook, and apply it in practice because that's the only way to really create value. That's all for now. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Let's all go out, be productive, learn, learn a lot, and have fun.